Niharika Pandit is a PhD candidate at the Department of Gender Studies at the London School of Economics. She holds an MA in Gender Studies as a Felix Scholar from SOAS, University of London, and a Bachelor's in Media Studies and Journalism from Sophia College in Mumbai. Her research interests lie at the intersections of gender, sexuality, anti-colonial and anti-militarist and feminist thought, and the politics of representation. Her research examines everyday politics and practices of living under military occupation in the Kashmir Valley, and that's what we speak about today on this episode. and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And uh, so to get us started, I'd just like to know a little bit about yourself, about your academic background, and about um, your areas of interest in your PhD mm-hmm. that you've been looking at. Thank you, Abha, for having me here. It's my pleasure, first of all. So a bit about my background. I come from Central India. So born and brought up in smaller towns of Central India, moved for my undergrad to Bombay, which is where I did a bachelor's in mass media with a focus on journalism. So that was a starting point in terms of getting to know critical knowledges that exist, right? We had modules like cultural studies, we had modules on ethics, um, journalism. So I think by my final year, it was just a decade, so by my final year, I was, I mean, I was always interested in feminist issues, but sort of um, gender started taking a predominant role in the essays that I was writing and I was thinking. And of course, I had teachers who were really sort of keen to help us think about gender in a more critical way. So I think that was the starting point. And, but still having done a journalism sort of degree, I wanted to also get a hang of what the field entails, right? So I did a couple of internships, but then moved to Delhi with to work with a news agency. I think in many ways, in hindsight, the experience was illuminating for the fact that I knew I didn't want to just do journalism. Like I wanted to look at um, gender and feminist theory more analytically. So I think even while working as a journalist, I sort of geared my reporting towards issues of gender, right? So that would be reporting, that would be like talking to theorists like you're doing right like right now to get a sense of what's going on. So I think that helped me channel my intellectual energies into that path. And then I applied for funding because uh, without any family, like there was no possibility for me to be able to even think about going abroad without funding, right? So I applied for some scholarship that worked out, so did my master's in SOAS, and that was in MA Gender Studies. And that's when I sort of moved from thinking about gender in more like sort of everyday terms to becoming more um, geared towards feminist theory and as a gender theorist. So that's been my journey. And then eventually SOAS went back, did some research back in Delhi, Bombay, um, came back to my PhD again through funding so otherwise it's really impossible for a lot of us to be able to study it in the UK because it's quite expensive right so I think some funding which again like mired in this level of systemic sort of structures 
make it impossible for a lot of people from marginalized communities to be able to apply. So I think in a way that worked out and here I am now in my final year of the PhD. I'm happy to hear that and you know it's it's very exciting right I'm pretty sure like the entire PhD process to really like see it accumulate over the years yeah and you know I think I just sort of like to inquire a little bit more specifically into your recent journal publication on the ghosts that haunt us so I just like to know a little bit about your interest in like Kashmir as a site of study and you know and like the types of research methodologies that you've used to look at the areas uh, that you've looked at. So I think when I was in Delhi working as a journalist I think I sort of that was the starting point because a lot of my journalism fraternity had people from Kashmir, Kashmiris who were part of, who were doing journalism, but also were colleagues. So I think it was a different insight into what as Indians we'd been taught and to an extent indoctrinated into, right? Like about a very colonized idea about what Kashmiris are and what the issue around Kashmir is. So I think that was the starting point for a personal reasons that I just wanted to know more uh, for myself and sort of break through that level of uh, very one-sided narratives that we were shown through state discourses, through education, being in India. And I think um, those conversations were ongoing. And then as part of my master's um, research, I sort of became interested in looking at the issue of anti-disappearance activism in Kashmir. So my entry point was essentially to look at what the state is doing because even doing my phd right now my questions are geared towards understanding the state power which is essentially like what militarization military occupation does what it does so i think um and that comes as part of me being and all of us actually who are indian citizens being complicit in the, what the state does in kashmir right so i think it's part of both a political as well as an epistemic responsibility to understand the state power, not to say that, oh, what the people are doing. The focus is different. The focus is on what the state is doing and still how people are challenging those sort of uh, very violent structures of power in their everyday lives. So I think the focus is then become more towards what goes on and how do people negotiate with that. So um, that's primarily how I started sort of working with Kashmir as a site which um, which I, I learned, like continuously learned from much from. Right, you know, I think something that's also interesting is that um, having a background in media, right, I think gives you a very different perspective because there, you know, you're collecting information with the primary objective of reported, right? I think as opposed to when you're, you know, going out there as a researcher, you really want to understand the lived realities of people and you want to, um, you know, so you don't really have the intentions of of, um, of your research, you know, and, and of like finding out, like a lot of the findings are, of course, um, quite, you know, like different in that sense, right? So I think I just like know a little bit as to how your background in media studies has perhaps helped you or like complemented a lot of like the research that like you're doing in in like Kashmir as a site of study. Um, actually, I could answer this in two ways. In a way, like my media training helped me, but also I had to unlearn a lot about media training while doing a PhD. Because I think initially when I was doing my master's, I thought the transition from, say, journalism to research would be seamless. But then having to write a PhD, you realize that a lot of ways in which you imbibe how writing is done or how say exactly like you pointed out right reporting wherein you just 
need to report the facts, but when you get to the analysis of it, that requires you to really be, be engaged with what people are saying to their, their own conceptualization rather than what the state or what the people in power are saying, right? So I think your center becomes shifted. And because a lot of news reporting relies inevitably, especially in Kashmir, relies on people of power, right? People who, politicians, um, the state, the government, police, the army. But again, as a researcher, when you want to learn, and I think research can also be a very, like, sort of, I think here I also want to mention that we're not, we're also embroiled in a very personal activity, right? Like we, academics gain tenure, they get publications out. So I think it becomes a very personal endeavor, but at the same time, centering people's conceptualizations and their ideas about what's going on, that is shift that you have to engender, right? And I think, but again, as a journalist, because I was um, doing a lot of interviews, so that sort of paved the way in the sense that building rapport or building sort of those um, friendships and community wasn't something that I was starting anew and something I had done previously as part of my training, but also just like political interests as a person. So I think all of that really helped in terms of solidifying what I wanted to do and even my research practices. And a lot of that has been informed by anti-colonial sort of feminism and how they look at the way research is done. And I think as any Indian person who becomes part of the Indian state, which is colonizing Kashmir, then again, you need to really center your ethics and politics as you're doing research, because I think starting from that, it's really, really important to then think about why you're interested. Absolutely, right. And, you know, I think something else that I think also happens as a part and parcel of the process is that you start receiving news differently and you start really understanding where a lot of like these different sources are coming from, right? So I just think I'd like to know a little bit as to how um, a lot of the narratives that Indian media sources have commonly told us differ from your on the ground findings and a lot of like what you found on research because I'm very sure that there is a stark difference in the way in which you know things are perceived and told to Indians as opposed to what lived realities of Kashmiris actually are. Mm -hmm. So I think um, I worked in a very now I can call a very Brahmanical news agency which was predominantly Hindu but also had a, a group of a dominant group of Kashmiri pundits as well who were working in the editorial space. But then again, it was a very sort of Islamophobic understanding of Kashmir and also very deeply racialized in the sense that all Kashmiris are problematic. So the narratives that I was hearing around me were pretty, uh, which is perhaps how the state the turn has also happened, right, in the way the state deals. And I'm not saying that it started from 2014, it's been ongoing since 1947. But I think as a person who's started their professional life in this space, that's when I realized that there's a big problem, like something is happening. And again, like even in the office setup, like a lot of my friends who were, um, say, Indian Muslims or even Kashmiri Muslims felt marginalized. But again, there was not much that they could say because the ongoing, like, predominant, I mean, it was quite um, repressive in the way you couldn't say certain things, right? And I think that's when, and there was obviously like over-reliance on state narratives. So, oh, the military is doing great in Kashmir, but then they would never highlight what's actually going on. And when you start talking to people from there who've had like 
really horrible lived experiences and a life growing up in conflict and occupation, then you realize that it's very, very different. And I think you start to be critical in the sense, not simply of what's being reported, but also the structures of power that kind of reporting is ingrained in. Right? So you start thinking about macro structural problems like the state, like the or like the media state nexus. And I think you start then thinking about how these bigger structural problems are seeping into everyday reporting, are seeping into our lives or what we are listening to constantly. And I think with now there's a clear, I mean, with 2014, there was a clear shift in media interests and, you know, they, they sort of are very um, towing the line of the government. And I think it's really important to see what that yields and what kind of narratives are coming across. But then for ordinary people, I mean, doing research is a privileged exercise, right? But for ordinary people, it's really hard to um, figure out the sort of differences and, you know, those complexities of these um, nexus. Yeah, and you know, and I think perhaps both of us can maybe reflect back upon how we have sort of understood Kashmir growing up, right? I think apart from some very basic understanding we got from like our history textbooks and all of that, there really was not much of an insight into the lives of the people and like a lot of like the issues that actually happened, right? I think everything was very factually sort of reported, right? And yeah, so I think, you know, along those lines, it's just like, you know, a little bit around, you know, like the historical context and, and where exactly these like these sentiments of like Islamophobia and all of that really more like come in and, and like what the roots of it are in, in like Indian um, media especially. Mm-hmm. So I think the problem goes back again like I said it's not 2014 it goes back to 1947 when the British divided the subcontinent in a very violent way right and a lot of actually uh, Kashmiri scholars have really looked back at historical narratives and seen and sort of really unraveled the various discourses that were in play and how specific maneuvering of discourses in the service of the nation state then made out Kashmir to be an integral part of the Indian Union, right? So they've looked back at say onwards 1930s and even like in the previous centuries, like there were ongoing movements within Kashmir against the then sort of monarch of Kashmir because it was a repressive Dogra Hindu monarch and there was systemic sort of marginalization of Kashmiri Muslims from say even in terms of what they could do, the the education they could take up, the professions they could take up. So I think there was a lot of ongoing mobilization. And when we look at, I think it's important to also separate ourselves from, because we've been, you know, sort of we've grown up around these very nationalist discourses that nation, 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 right? So we need to step out of that and see what's actually going on. So here there's a proper affective dissociation that you have to do to be able to even hear. And I think that's the work that us as um, Indians who are part of like the colonizing state in Kashmir have to really put in that kind of work because Kashmiri scholars, for example, have been doing that work, but it's up to us how we read it, right? So um, again, that problem goes back to years ago, decades ago, in fact. And then again, the kind of Kashmiri nationalism that we saw in those years leading up to 1947 was could not be subsumed under the Indian or Pakistani anti-colonial nationalism that was happening. 
because um, for the longest time, even like even if we focused on the then monarch, he was undecided whether we wanted he wanted to go with India or Pakistan. They wanted to remain like an independent sort of territory. And I think um, then on what goes on, especially in Indian narratives, this is idea that oh, but the king acceded to. Indian Union, right? And then uh, the army landed there. But again, the problem has been about political self-determination. And it's not rocket science. It's easy. Like everybody, uh, all of us have the right to self-determine what lives we're going to live, who is going to, you know, who, who we want in power, or how, how we want our communities or our uh, daily lives to look like. So I think it's been a series of sort of deceptions and you know working with politicians in the region also to maneuvering it as a case of say no no Kashmir is you know integral part of India and I say that in scare quotes but then again where are its people why aren't you listening to people um, who are trying to like who've been long demanding their right to self-determination and again like this is not again. I mean, how the media narrative and how the statist discourses also fit this is, oh, this is all Islamic indoctrination. But the right to self-determination is a very anti-colonial idea in itself. And the fact that when anti-colonial movement in India happened against the British colonizers, they were demanding the same thing. They were demanding the right to self-determination. And then it's interesting to look at how a sort of say post-colonial nation state then starts colonizing another territory right and basically again not offering those options which you asked for to uh, an occupied people and i think then that changes your vantage that there's something terribly wrong with how things have happened and how um Global narratives right now, racialization of Muslims and and then Islamophobia after 9/11, especially it it took a new life in how the Indian state also used certain discourses to justify what it was doing in Kashmir, and that was military repression of people in Kashmir. Right, so I think we need to really look very carefully at how these discourses are sort of at play in different geopolitical locations. And that's how then Indians start to understand Kashmir as an integral part, but then again, you're not offered those histories or we don't work or we don't put in the effort to even step out of our nation nationalist affiliation to be able to see different histories. And that's not just with Kashmir, but even within the movements that, that have been going on in the Northeastern territory. So I think we need to really step out of those frameworks that we've been told for so long to be able to even listen to what people have been saying. Certainly, right. And I think, you know, it is, you know, I think a lot of, of this research really ties back into um, very significant uh, things happening in India, you know, like BJ's as well, right? Like, I think there was the CAA and RC protest that had happened in Delhi. 
um, not very very long ago and you know and since then right i feel like even after the protest stop it's not that the reality stops after that like the problem still continues so yeah you know and i'm pretty sure that apart from looking at a lot of like these media narratives and looking at like interviews and all of that as well i'm quite sure that looking at the work of a lot of other scholars is also being a part of like your research work so i think i just like know a little bit about your like literature review process and and like your findings on on that front as well Mm. So I think as a feminist researcher and theorist, it's really like feminism, feminist theory, especially when you look at indigenous feminisms, decolonial feminisms, um, black feminisms in the U.S., but also within the African continent, like decolonial feminisms and their work, has been very very crucial in terms of centering. ethic in the process of research so i think it was feminist theorists who first sort of challenged all the ideas around objectivity of research or saying that oh you can be a researcher not mired in any context and offer a true account but then feminists have long told us that that's never possible because we come from a very specific location not just in terms of where we are situated but all the social structures that we are ingrained in so for me for instance it would be um as a person who's a non kashmiri indian person right and even though i disavow um the nationalist framings of the indian state but again i have and so so many of us have been ingrained in those ideas of nationalism in those ideas of Uh, the nation so to say integrity and i think um feminist scholars then tell us that those are not simply identity location but they drive how we see the world they drive how we read what we read and who we listen to and i think that changes the way we understand research and therefore research becomes a very subjective process it becomes a process which um as a researcher i cannot shy away from saying that oh no but so what right so what if my identity locations are um different but then feminist researcher uh, research tells us that that is precisely why you do certain you know research and how you do certain research then is affected by the location you occupy so i think a concept that i find really incredible is first um sort of it was um talked about by agendich um agendich um uh it was a poet and author and in her piece she's talking about naming the ground from which we speak from and from which we write and i think naming the ground is really essential to even destabilizing the category of women or women who become the subject of feminism but again what kind of women are we talking about who are these women that we're working with again there comes then uh, even dalit feminist theory has given us so many tools in terms of really displacing this idea of a unified woman within the indian subcontinent and told us that no caste and gender were always intermeshed so there was no way you can privilege gender for certain political claims because that idea of gender is essentially a savarna woman to 
can gain the same power as her male counterparts. But when you start thinking about caste, and I think um, that's what Dr. Ambedkar showed us, right, in his work, that it's caste and gender are so interlinked that it's not easy to think about them as separate vectors. And then you start seeing and reading and sort of engaging with other people's thinking in a very different manner, right? And that's where sort of every research for me pivots from. That's the sort of pivot from where I look at what kind of assumptions that I'm bringing into the research process and then how I ask my questions. So am I asking questions to prove that occupation exists? No, I'm asking the questions to see how it works in everyday life. And that's an orientation that was brought about my own recognition of the positions that I occupy as a person, right? So I think those processes are really, this shows that, you know, it's not interlinked. Like I didn't think about the research before I even interrogated all of these aspects of the spaces that I inhabit. And this shows that this is all mixed and meshed together, not just mixed, but like sort of it's working through with each other. And coming back to then again, how we orient ourselves, like who are we listening to? What are we doing as part of our research, but also as part of, as a political person, right? How do I engage with people around me in terms of community formation? And I think then um, for the past two decades, excellent work has been coming out of Kashmir by Kashmiri scholars, right? And they've been trying to orient and you know, prompt a shift in the thinking. And I think we all have so much to learn from the courageous but also rich theoretical work that has been coming out from the region. Right, certainly. And you know, I think something else that um, makes you know, like your like site of research more specific is the fact that you are a feminist scholar in that sense, right? So I think I just like you know a little bit as you know, like whether uh, like the people you interview and look at specifically are like women, like how exactly your training as a feminist researcher has sort of shaped a lot of the work that you do in Kashmir specifically as a state of study. Mm. I don't know um, that recently there have been lots of discussions on Twitter, but also within communities about ethics, right? Like right now, um, ethics of Indian people doing research in Kashmir and learning from Kashmir. So I think there has been a lot of rich ongoing discussions on that front. And we sort of need to backtrack and start really addressing the issues at the heart of this. And addressing our own complicity because I think for a long time even a lot of say um, well-intentioned scholars ended up reproducing what the state was saying and I think um, here we need to identify the community that we are accountable to but also the research knowledge that we are accountable to so if you're talking predominantly I mean, talking in the sense that you're reading and engaging predominantly with theories which are written, say, by non-Kashmiris, then you'll have a very different idea about what's going on, which is similar to what the state narratives and media narratives are right? But when you become an interlocutor, say, of Kashmir scholarship produced by Kashmir scholars, then you start orienting yourself in a very different way. And I think then your approach, I mean, theoretically, it has to change, but unfortunately it doesn't happen 
as often even in contemporary sort of so to say post-colonial scholarship and i think that remains at the heart of any work that privileged indians or indian citizens want to engage with kashmir and with its people right and again as a feminist theorist and person who's trained in gender studies it remains imperative to question what even as gender so you know when you enter any field we've been told by decolonial scholars like Maria Lugone and um or Zemi about how gender is not a stable concept which means that there is no such thing called gender which exists prior to its emergence right which means that we have to track how gender also functions and what becomes of gender so for instance like it's not just women that i'm talking to it's also men because they are again like very much seeped into gender relations that happen in an occupied zone and then again you have to go back to what kind of gender relations are you tracking so for instance that would mean how the state uses gender narratives to justify its occupation so for example with august 5 siege that we saw in 2019 which were in without any consent of kashmiris complete blackout was launched and nominal autonomy of the region was taken away and again when you think about it in gender terms it's a very classic heterosexist patriarchal discourse that is at work or a structure that is at work that you lock a territory and its people that you've feminized for so long in the indian imagination and do what you're doing without any consent and i think that really then shows you how gender and its ideas how say are very central to how the state is functioning and then again this this discourses that followed were oh we're trying to save kashmiri women what the hell is that it's the classic colonial narrative of white men saving brown women from brown men as gayatri sevat told us and i think when we start really taking out and analyzing these narratives we understand the role of gender in a very different way in a way that it used by people in power and its predominant understandings right these are very say very patriarchal very unequal hierarchical relationships that are at play in everyday life in everyday actions of the state and that's when you start seeing not in a paranoid sense the presence of gender everywhere but then you start analyzing how gender is being mutated it's being used it's being sort of transformed to contradictory effects sometimes they're not you know they are in contradiction with what people are saying and i think what people what i mean is what the state is saying and i think you need to even bring out those contradictions to be able to challenge them and then again when we're thinking about what happens in everyday life within an occupied zone like kashmir you have to understand that it's how does presence of a repressive military sort of setup you know changes everyday dynamics of gender relations so for instance in my research i have found out how that you know when you go to kashmir you'll see a very vast presence of soldiers everywhere and these are male soldiers and you know um there's a different way in which there is a certain gaze of the soldier towards the kashmiri woman and how that challenges or not really challenges but how that shapes how women navigate space 
and that in turn changes the dynamics of gender relations within the region and then again we need to ask that it's not simply the societal gender structures but also how they come together with the presence of a military occupation to really change gender relations in which women feel unsafe to be able to access public spaces or they have they sort of become subjected to more specific codes of how to access space how to navigate space or even what professions you can choose depending on what feels safe or unsafe and i think that is the interlocking that we need to really understand without getting into the tropes of oh all societies are patriarchal i mean we know that but then again we're not a you know like patriarchy is not a universal condition patriarchy comes into being in its relation with caste in its relation with military occupation in its relation with colonization so i think that is the work that feminist theorists and scholars have done and i'm i'm, I'm not the only one but like legacy of work that we are learning from right definitely along those lines gender is i think you know such a powerful lens to really look at how power sort of operates and is exercised not just on a larger macro scale level but you know on a more everyday daily you know and how it's just like perpetuated in that sense and i think something i'd like to pick on um, you know that you had mentioned is that the work of a lot of kashmiri scholars and a lot of indian scholars is actually um, you know like even though they might be speaking about the same things like the kind of work that's been done and their findings are quite different right like irrespective of uh, the intentions of indian scholars so i think along those lines i just like to know if you have any examples of any um, ideas or like discourses that you found over the course of um, of literature in which you know how the same event could be mentioned or reported in like different ways mm-hmm. so i think what really like following from what i just said what really goes amiss is when you only center gender and stop looking at how it's working with other vectors of power right so i'm thinking say of scholars who will only focus on violence without really looking at the causes or conditions of violence so what is causing violence and why is it being caused because of the political demands that kashmiris have long voiced right it's their demand for self determination which is not um again it's it's not a rocket science concept that we kind of can't grasp it's just figuring out what kind of spiritual political everyday life you're going to be able to live and what happens then is when you only focus on violence you kind of sometimes you know it, it becomes a sleight of hand wherein you kind of don't see the underlying causes of that violence so violence is happening because there is this big political demand which the indian state wants to repress and it does so through military occupation so therefore we need to look at both gender and coloniality together so with coloniality what i mean is that yes colonialism in india like british colonialism in india is over but again the same structures of power are at work we look at our bureaucracy we look at our education but even more specifically if we look at how the state functions in kashmir it's a very colonial state so when you only focus on violence without taking gender and coloniality into the center of our analysis we miss out on a lot we miss out on the fact that there's a reason why violence happens and the violence becomes a way of 
you know, punishing people under siege because they have a particular political demand. And that's the shift that I think a lot of Kashmiri scholars have prompted and helped us navigate in terms of looking at what kind of so these are all permutations of power, right? This is not a singular power. It's not only gender, but again, it's gender with racialization of Muslims, with coloniality, with um, Brahmanical ideas, especially in how the Hindutva state or the idea of Hindutva imagines its Akhand Bharat mission. So then all of it is an excess. And it's not only gender. It is gender with coloniality, with racialization, with Brahmanism. So that is how we sort of um, need to prompt a shift in how we understand um, everyday power dynamics. Because these are literally seeping into every day. They are shaping how people even understand of their everyday lives. So for us, who are in non-conflict locations, for us, everyday kind of can be very banal. But for people, living in an occupied zone every day there's nothing banal or nothing mundane about the everyday because the moment you step out of the house there's a possibility that you may be stopped at a checkpoint and you don't know what happens after you stopped or you something may happen in your locality and then perhaps it's put under curfew and suddenly all communication is trapped so our everyday as people who are from a non-conflict zone is very very different and that again goes on to show how all these sort of amalgam of power is shaping what even every day becomes definitely and and you know in connection to a lot of points that you brought up i think a very common concept that is often brought out in in like sociology especially is that of intersectionality right because you know i think even though the everyday of Kashmiris as, you know, a whole category is very different from that of Indians. You know, I think even the Kashmiri itself is a category which is so fraught with diversity, right? So I think along those lines, I just like to know as to how the Kashmiri women's experiences are like different from that of her male counterparts, if, if that was covered in your research. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, like I pointed out in terms of, so we all know that militarization and war projects or occupation projects are gendered. We know that they are masculinist in the way militarization in fact functions, right? When Cynthia and Lucy said that militarization is a process where we start thinking and it becomes normalized that war and force is an answer to all of our problems. And that's a very power hungry masculine way of looking at it, that you use force to subdue a people who are defiant. And then again, you see, first of all, you see the gendered logics in which are centered in such projects, right? And of course, then this is one instance of a gendered logic, but then again, then you see how it's flowing in contradictory ways throughout the processes. So it will look different. Why I said it was contradictory, because sometimes what the state says is in contradiction to what goes on on the ground so for instance this says the state is going to say oh we are going to save kashmiri women and then your soldiers actually end up doing the opposite so these are the contradictions that are inherent in any project of repressive power and then of course in terms of gender relations it's important to 
not just see how gender relations are in the everyday like i said that because everyday is carved by all these power structures then we need to analyze that that carving is also gendered so instead of gender relations in the everyday we have to look at gender relations of the everyday so how um, say i give an example of how spatial navigation becomes different and it has very gendered underpinnings and then again um kashmiri anthropologist akazia in her work on anti disappearance like it's a brilliant ethnography anti disappearance activism in kashmir so she and a lot of scholars who've done sort of previously but her work is sort of overarching and very exhaustive in the way she's dealt with um looking at exactly what you said the functions of gender and how it shapes gender relations in the everyday so with the disappearance activism because a lot of young men and boys were disappeared so it made kashmiri women hyper visible because suddenly you um first of all your kin has been taken away wherein you have no idea about their whereabouts and then you are coming together as activists to challenge that to sort of demand from the state that tell us what's happened and that changes how even anti disappearance activists are navigate especially women activists are navigating space so they are becoming hyper visible in the sense that they take up public spaces for protest but then again there is a series of you know sort of uh, limitations that they face through that so they come head on with the military state and they just like challenging their understanding of how women can take up space so i think those logics are um very differential and again like this is to point out that there's we can't give an overarching theory of how it functions because it's necessary to see its permutations which are very complex right these are complex questions but that doesn't mean we can't track them right you know i think something that we try to understand and repeat like time and over again in research right is that these categories are not straight cut or like a monolith right in that sense because you've got you know so many diverse and opposing forces and these are like changing every day and you know i think often times whenever we have um like larger events i think we often see how a lot of these disparities you know i think a lot of these like inequalities are not just like perpetuated but they're also exasperated right i think one extremely big example is out of the covid-19 pandemic i think like in india at least a lot of the narrative was around you know like the daily wage workers and how a lot of like the inequalities and problems that they've been facing had just gotten way way out of hand right and and we looked at the state's response which of course was definitely nowhere near the mark so i think um you know i think along those lines it's just like know a little bit as to how the pandemic affected like the situation in kashmir and how it exasperated a lot of the already ongoing issues and challenges like faced by people over there as well mm-hmm. um so i think i would not be the right person to sort of reflect on what goes on in terms of kashmir like a lot of kashmiri scholars have also written like samia mehraj has written about how um the covid lockdown was just one lockdown within so many lockdowns and so many militaristic siege that has been happening in the region right so the experience of lockdown say for a person in non occupied non conflict geography is very different from what has been happening in conflict and occupied geography and again um so i think the like you said the differential exacerbation of um say for instance in india are not as heavily militarized as they are in kashmir and then again because with militarization 
there's always been sort of a difficult like it's been a difficult terrain in terms of people to access healthcare in terms of people to access basic daily livelihood things right because it was in 2019 that kashmir was again put under long siege so a lot of things had already like stalled people were unable to get medical help people were unable to step out of their houses they were unable to even sort of make money because everyday businesses everyday everything was shut and i think we need to look at it in that light that with the pandemic again all of these things are only magnified and then you need to look at what happened in the pandemic uh, especially in kashmir wherein the government started you know giving out these notifications that oh now non indians can uh, sorry now non kashmiri indians can buy land or they can get mining and land rights in kashmir so it's not just the pandemic but in the garb of the pandemic what has been done to fast pace settler colonialism so i think we need to look at in the guise of this global emergency as it has been portrayed and it is a global emergency but again like a lot of narratives around war and militarism which has been my sort of theoretical interest they stop us from seeing what is actually happening they stop us because we we think that oh it's an emergency it's a war like situation but then an actual war is again being forged on a people who were already under war so then again how do you really dissect these narratives and what the state does in putting forward these narratives but it does something completely opposite which is fast pacing settler colonialism when it needs to sort of address immediate health issues or say of what's going on what was going on and what still is people are still reeling from the effects of covid waves uh what happened in india but then again that has shifted our focus if we start thinking about it as an emergency which it was we start like that now there are blinkers on we can't see what the state is doing in terms of settler colonialism yeah definitely i think you know i would definitely agree right that you know even when these events happen like like the covid-19 pandemic like ca and rc you know and these are just two examples right i feel like you know the media especially they focus on it for some time and then they move on to the next hot topic right and like people who aren't living like the reality right like for us it's it really doesn't mean anything we could care about it but you know there are people who are actually living these lives who are living these problems even when you know like the media is not focusing on them and i think that's something that's definitely often overlooked i'm pretty sure that you already know that you know like the social sciences um as a field of study is one where because we are studying human beings of course there is bias and there are you know a lot of these other things that creep in uh, so have you ever felt that your identity your experiences or background has influenced the course of your narration or your access to resources or like any such thing i just like you know a bit as like your experiences uh, on that end mhm i wouldn't call it bias but i would call it like um every research is subjective in the sense that um like i said like bringing on from my earlier points about the way we look is sort of governed by the experiences that we've had so i think it's not so much of um i mean you could call it bias because then again but then again you need to figure out who are you accountable to are you again like accountable on the side of power or accountable to the people who have been ravaged by power right so i think you need to choose your constituency in that light 
And I think um, I make it very clear throughout the research process that my, um, like I'm centering how Kashmiri people conceptualize their own everyday life, which is as a case of occupation. And I think once you start from that vantage, then you automatically, your affinities lie, your accountability lies with people, your interlocutors, and people who, who, who've trusted you with their stories. So I think it's a, a matter of massive privilege to be able to even do the kind of work and to be able to be entrusted enough with the stories that people are telling us, right? So I think that comes with a lot of responsibility, especially a lot of responsibility when we as Indians go and ask, you know, sort of do research and learn from Kashmir. So then again, we need to keep our, um, we need to be constant. And this is not a one-off process. What I'm like, that is really important to underline that this is not that, oh, if I have framed my research in that way, it's done, like I'm fully ethical. That doesn't work, right? Um, it is an ongoing process and it is a failed process. Us failed and we all will fail inevitably because these are real material structures of power that we are trying to confront. And, but that acknowledgement of humility, that acknowledgement of complicity, of failure, of um, not knowing sometimes. I think as researchers also, there's an emphasis that you need to know everything, but sometimes you don't know everything and you can't know everything. And that's perfectly fine because that's showing us the complexity sometimes, which is beyond how we can put it into words. And that's the task of a researcher to even be able to start unpacking those solutions, right? So I think I, I, I just sort of say that this is an ongoing process. It's a process driven with failure. Uh, but then again, we need to choose who we are accountable to, what side we are aligned on, and which is, again, for me, it's always the side of people who are oppressed by power, who are trying to... You know, negotiate and sort of resist power in very vocal ways. And I think that clarifies a lot of these conundrums, right? Um, and I will fail, you, all of us will fail, but then it's about learning and being, you know, having sort of embodying humility through that process, which is really central to any research. Definitely. And, you know, I think it reminds me of uh, that really cliche statement, right, which is that with great power comes great responsibility. And I think, you know, especially as researchers, when you have the power to go up, like around and ask people about themselves in their lives, I think it really, you know, like reminds us, right, that we are accountable to making sure that, you know, it is like represented to the best that we can do. And while there is um, no such thing really as neutrality or something that will be agreeable to everybody, you know, I think we can definitely strive towards it, right? I think there's never any harm in, in striving towards being as true to, you know, like our findings as we can. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's about it from my end. So thank you Niharika for taking all the time today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, yeah, thank it you. was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe or follow. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle DTRRH podcast for further updates.